looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Mmm, I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch is got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Mm -mm Mmm-mm-mm. Don't mess with me, I'm one crazy mofo. Hey, I know we have a lot of horror fans that listen to our shows, and I know things have been tough for everybody across the board these past six or seven months with what's been going on in the real world, but I wanted to make a suggestion to you horror fans, because I know part of the normal routine year in and year out is to attend different conventions to meet some of your favorite horror stars. However, none of us have been able to do that because of obvious reasons. But I do have a little suggestion for you. SignatureHorror.com Now, some may ask, what is that? Well, they obtain autographs for the fans from some of their favorite stars, from some of their favorite franchises. Whether it be the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. They have different options such as, besides getting their autographs, you can do live Zoom calls with your favorite stars. You can do personalized videos for people, greetings of some sort. They just have many options. So if you're looking for to spend some money that you may have spent at conventions, check them out and see the options they have SignatureHorror.com That's right, SignatureHorror.com This is Debbie Rashawn and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. And I'm Elena, your favorite host from the Emerald Isle. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. This next guest grew up in British Columbia, Canada, and was considered being a child of the streets and victim of negative stuff. We don't want to really hit on a negative because... There's enough on TV and such nowadays. But things turned around for her, rumor had it, when she ended up 
accidentally as a featured player for three months in a Paramount movie in 1982, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Strains. But also she's known for her countless roles in independent horror film work and counterculture films. Check out her shop and everything about this guest at DebbieRashawn.com. Debbie, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, things are going really good. Yeah, let's try to stay on the up and up. You know, obviously everybody has their hills and valleys. But I want to ask. Oh, yeah. That. I want to ask about that. How did you accidentally end up as a feature role or extra role there? In, uh, well, just to correct you a tiny bit, because all the information on the internet is fairly accurate, but it's not completely accurate. It was shot in 1980, which is a small difference, but when you're that young, it's a big difference. Yes. Um, I, knew, I knew somebody who was producing uh, um, Craig Russell's films, and he was just this, this character that I knew, that I knew, excuse me, and um, his name was Jamie, and he said, hey, you know what? Down at the Denman Inn, which was a hotel, uh, down on Demon Street in, in Vancouver. He said they're casting a casting director by the name of Lynn Carroll is casting this new kind of punk rock movie directed by um, uh, Lou Adler, who did the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and it has like all these punk rockers in it, like The Clash and The Sex Pistols and Ray Winston, one of his first movies, not his first movie, Laura Dern, Diane Lane, all these, all these people in it. He said, you know, and they're looking for, you know, girls like you, your age, and you should go down there. So I did, and uh, I had a Polaroid taken back then. That's what you did. And uh, they cast me. They said, are you willing to, you know, bleach your hair? And I said, yeah. Like, you know, what did I care? And uh, that was the initial beginning of how I was cast. And you know, it's funny for, and I just want to make a mention, we have sometimes a little bit of a younger audience. When she says Polaroid, that was actually something that printed out and was filmed. Not everything was digital back in the day, folks. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that pretty much is, it was kind of like shooting on, on film film because it was so expensive that, you know, they would take one, possibly two Polaroids and that was it. It yeah. wasn't like taking a hundred. It was like, that was it. Like you, you hope you got it in that one picture. So yeah. And then you had to like flip it around so it would dry before yeah. you peeled it apart because that's how, you know, that was very, you know, cutting edge that, you know, you didn't have to take it to be developed somewhere. It would develop on the spot, but all the chemicals were right in there. So you had to dry it before you opened it up. Interesting. Interesting yeah. time. I'm, I'm old enough to remember Polaroids and actually taking film to the, the little film cartridges to get the <laughs> yeah. The good times. Yeah. You never knew what you had. It, that was kind of fun. Yeah, you you got excited. Oh, what am I picking up? So, <laughs> yeah, I know it's true. I hope uh, I got these shots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where I look at my nephew who's twenty months old, he'll take a phone and go, and takes pictures. I was like, how the hell do you know how to take pictures? But they do. They do, and they know how to film, and they know how to edit and do voiceover and make videos and all this kind of stuff because you know you could do that in your phone you don't even need a, a desktop to do that stuff anymore so pretty cool it's yeah pretty cool you know we kid about the technology and stuff but you know we both have been around since the advancement of things being released over time such as vhs mm -hmm. beta to dvd yes to now a lot of stuff being video on demand or VOD as the kids like to say. Mm -hmm. Has your opinion changed over the time, both professionally and not professionally of the advancement of that technology? Well, I mean, in, I kind of, I like it now in both cases. I think in the beginning when people were, they were not using film anymore and they were only doing uh, various digital 
uh, films and stuff like that. I felt like it because they the advancement of being able to do that and being able to do that so it looked good. There was a big curve, so it didn't look good like it does now immediately. I mean, there was a time where I mean, I worked with a filmmaker by the name of Kevin Lindenmuth, and he was shooting literally on on VHS tapes. He had one of those big cameras, and he wasn't the only one, but there was only a few back then. And um, but he did really good. He made it look good, uh, so it was very promising. But for the longest time, the longest time, people who were going digital over film, um, it, it's it wasn't ready. It wasn't. I don't want to say dummy proof because that that sounds like you know an insult to the people making the movies. But it looked like a backyard movie, even if you had fifty, seventy-five thousand dollar budget or a hundred thousand dollar budget even. It you know, it took a long time for the technology to catch up with the look of a professional production. So there was that curve. And then anybody who was working in the business at that point, um, if the movies they were working on weren't shot on film, they were immediately kind of put in this very lower class category um and it wasn't i don't think it was really that fair because it was technology hadn't caught up and you know it really was the the end of film was being signaled all over the place it was going to happen whether we all liked it or not i mean it was just going to happen and um you know but everybody hung on as long as they could i did the very last film on film that fred olin ray made in Hawaii, <clears throat> excuse me, we were both there for two films. And the first one we shot called Final Examination. And the second one was a sequel to uh, Mercy. It was called More Mercy. And I was the Ellen, Bur or the Ellen uh, Barkin, excuse me, uh, role in that. And um, the, uh, Albert Pune came along. He was involved with the production and he said, you know, I don't know why we're spending all this money on film and getting it processed and the dailies and all this stuff. This is in uh, 2000, I want to say 2002. And so he basically, they let go Fred Olin Ray and they let go obviously his, uh, you know, DP and Albert Pune took over the second production. I left with uh, Fred Olin Ray, not because I had to, but I thought it was the right thing to do seeing he hired me. Um, and, you know, so when he went, I was like, you know, I'm not staying and it turned into something completely different. Uh, but yeah, the, there was, you know, some people held out a long time, but eventually it's, you know, it's really just only the hardcore art, uh, filmmakers use it now because it's just you know digital can look so damn good now you would never know the difference ever so i mean that's how far we've come but it's taken this long yeah true and things are always going to continue advancing both yeah. good and bad so right you know it was funny when i was doing some homework because god forbid my parents wanted me to know, know how to read and write and all that fun shit and I don't remember seeing what production it was, but there was a little rumor said that you had a injury to a couple couple of your digits on your right hand with a yes. machete. What happened yeah. there? Well, I was working on a movie where um, there was uh, there was a scene where I was um, stabbing to death one of the characters, which was obviously a fake body in the floor, and so the uh, the prop was um, a fake machete, obviously. And so we went through the scene a number of times and I would use it and we'd do the scene, it would end. It was, a lot, it was ironically the last shot for my character, I believe in the film, uh, not sure though, for my character for sure. And it was taking place at dusk and it was getting dark. The, he, the director didn't like how the fake machete was looking so he said, bring in a different prop. So the prop master brought in a different, assumingly fake machete, because that's 
what you use in film shoots. Mm -hmm. And so he said, you know the scene really well, just, you know, let's get it before we lose all the light. So I was like, absolutely. So I was jacked up to get it really good because basically we had time for about one more shot, really. And um, so I just took the, the knife in the scene, went down, they had a fake body, of course, um, and I just jumped off the air and just wailed down as hard as I could on the fake body. Now, it was a real machete and I didn't know it. So my hand went, there's no hitch on a machete, as most people know who have ever seen one or, or picked one up. So my hand just went with all its might straight down the blade and all four fingers were cut off except for the bone. And I had two operations to get it to the point where I could use it at all. So, so how are you doing now overall with an injury like that? It's, uh, well, I have pain every single day. You know, I have pain in my hand every single day because the joints, they don't, you know, the tendons shrunk. So when I had the operation, uh, it wasn't like they were going to go straight again. So I don't know if you, you personally could see this, but, but they're, they're not, they, my fingers on my right hand, which is, I'm right-handed, which made it worse, made it suck even more. Um, yeah. So pain every day can't use them, makes it harder to write my book because it's not as easy to type as if they were completely flexible. So, um, you know, it's okay. I mean, I'm lucky that I use it. I, I, it would really suck to not have my right hand at all. You know, just have some fingers that dangle and were not usable. So in a lot of ways, I was really, really lucky. I had a great surgeon that they didn't pay for. I did. I had to. That, now that sucks. You know, and it could get into a whole different topic of like unions and just everything that goes with effects like that. But yeah, you know, we can be here all day having that kind of conversation. But luckily, oh, for sure. Luckily, yeah. all is well. But yes, backtrack a little bit over the years because, like we said with the introduction, where you ended up going the direction of becoming an actress and all that stuff. Mm. I noticed, and like we all, we both agree on it. Everything on the internet is true. Am I on the internet? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Just everything. like that. What okay. we were kidding about uh, prior to uh, starkness. I noticed you had trained with several different train or what's the word I'm looking for. Methods. Uh, different yeah. Methods, yeah. Acting coaches, you know, and such like that. Yeah. I guess it's the best way to go with that. You know, like Ted Pugh and Penelope Allen and such. Uh, yeah. And there was a few others sprinkled in there as well over your career. Were mm -hmm. they all similar in the philosophy and what they taught you as far as acting? Or was it what one would tell you, let's go with this direction? Or the next one would say this philosophy, you know? Where can you use them? Hey, what's with the used books? What's wrong with used books? They've already been read. I totally understand the question. And they were all extremely different. And I got something out of all of them. My favorite was um, with Ted Pugh, who taught the Michael Chekhov technique. The reason being, um, I did the Stanislavski, uh, which was like the Uta Hagen and the William Hickey school. That Those are some teachers I, I studied with under that um, method. Uh, Penelope Allen did the uh, Strasberg, uh, Lee Strasberg studio method. And they were all really good. They were all incredibly good. But at that time, what spoke to me the most was Michael Chekhov. And that was because he would work. When you say from the outside in, it doesn't sound as intense from the inside out, but it is. It's sort of like activating your feelings and the cells of your feelings from doing an action and then letting it to reverberate from the inside. And then you're getting to the same place. You're just getting there by a different road. It really, really is. I mean, it's just as effective and deep and, and meaningful. But that spoke to me because I, 
I didn't find that the uh, Stanislavski way spoke to me too much because that was really about writing for very long periods of time information about your character. So that didn't sort of spring me into feeling like I was ready to do anything. It just gave me a lot of heady information. It didn't really like speak to me as an actor. So, but then the Strasberg um, method with, um, you know, sense memory and this kind of stuff and working with different emotions in different ways, that was helpful. But at the end of the day, it was Michael Chekhov technique that I, I, I think is just brilliant. It, it was good for me because you gotta remember as a street kid, I was very, very trained to survive by being cut off from my emotions. So by writing stuff down, it didn't really break that barrier for me. So through a lot of like vocal um, classes, breathing classes that you have to take as an actor, um, it's not like yoga stuff. It's very different approaches for like an actor. And Michael Chekhov, that seemed to get into my body more, which was more, which was, you know, I had the brick wall I had to work through. So that was the, the elements. Th those were the elements that helped me the most. Speaking of that, and I wouldn't know which philosophy it would fall under, but are you one that is what's on the script is gospel, or do you feel that at a certain point you can make suggestions? Well, what's on page is good, but why don't we try this or try that? Well, I always do much better unless the script is incredible, like um, like it's it's written like a play. And there's a few of those that I've been in. One just that comes to mind is Exhumed. Another one, Color from the Dark, uh, Wrath of the Crows. There are movies that are like scripts in the sense that every line has incredible purpose and um it has like a, a, a various meanings to it overall i would say the most fun and the most some of the most memorable performances i've ever done is when the director trusts me enough to just improvise like yes i'm reading the lines but if something else comes within that scene or even there's i, w I wouldn't say too much of a change of a scene because once you're shooting, you have time and location and, and props and actor limitations. So you can't completely change something, but you can sort of make it your own. And if you're working with somebody who's open to that, they're going to know the value of if an actor is really wanting to make your character come to life, there's going to be some variation in lines delivery, uh, motivation, perhaps. So, I mean, those are my favorite directors to work with. Like I say, unless they're so incredibly talented in the writing aspect where it's like, and another excellent example would be Nightmare Box, which turned into Doom Room. You know, I mean, there are a few films that they've been so, they've been written by people who are like, playwrights. That's great. Love it. Also love uh, directors who write with the envision of the actors being able to improvise. Well, speaking of Nightmare Box, I've been noticing throughout this whole time we're chatting because we're taping this on Zoom, but she's got, Debbie's got the Nightmare Box banner behind her in the room. I do. Is, yeah. Which is kind of cool. Yeah, no, I actually have a lot of posters. I have to kind of switch them out because I have, I have so many that I don't have room and I don't have the same one up all the time. So it seems like that's the only one that I like. You uh, mentioned we're talking about writing as such in your previous answer, I guess I should put it. But I also noticed in doing some homework, which is kind of cool, that you, you were, have always been multidimensional. And mm -hmm. you've done writing yourself. Mm -hmm. What did you? Uh, what attracted you to the writing aspect of your career? Well, I mean, I always 
when I was young, I kept a journal. I didn't keep the journals though, but I wrote in a journal, which was sad. I didn't keep them, but, um, or I just, I lost, I didn't intentionally get rid of them. I lost them. Um, I just always have done it. And once I had avenues to write things, um, I just, I just never stopped. I mean, I loved speaking to people. I loved writing about people. I loved writing about movies. I'm not a critic. Uh, I would never want to be a critic only because I have just been in so many things that people have like, there's so much blood, sweat and tears. I swear to God, I could never, even if I really thought it was crap, I, I just don't think it's just not my place. It's somebody else's place to do like a review of something because I know it goes into it and it's, and it's way too painful to, to just dismiss something so easily. Even if it's, even if it's horrible, I know the same amount of work could have gone into that as the next thing that's brilliant. So, you know, I'd, I'd never wanted to do that. So I never did that. But I wrote about movies or about filmmakers. I wrote for the Joe Bob Report. I wrote for many, many, like well over a dozen, maybe a couple of dozen genre magazines. And I've written chapters for books and now I'm writing my book. So, and then I've done a lot of radio too. So, yeah, I mean, you have to kind of flow with the times. Like you have to go with, the flow and you know what's coming up what are the opportunities that are coming up for you um they're all if they're creative and it's something of interest then of course you're going to you know go by way of you know down a different different avenue and it's not really a different avenue because they're all aspects of the same thing i mean you're always learning you're learning from filmmakers if you're interviewing them on radio you're having great conversations. If you're writing about them, you're doing tons of research that helps. So it's all like a means to the same end in a strange way. You're right. And you beat me to the punch with the radio. Cause I know you were involved with something called pseudo radio back in the nineties. Yeah. The early infancy of the internet and internet radio and podcast, what became podcasting and all that stuff. But you also fast forward a few years or on a similar medium, like you mentioned radio and worked with D Snyder who mm -hmm. know a few people who know him, but I never directly dealt with him have heard nothing but awesome things about D yeah. and he's nothing about what you would expect from him. No, he's not. So with the radio, because the stuff with D was on Sirius, if I remember correctly. Yes, Earl. that's right. Sirius. And was there a certain freedom? Because obviously, as I mentioned there, it's changed. But not only regular radio in the digital with Sirius XM and all that fun stuff, but the early internet shows to podcasting and all. Did you really feel good with that? evolving medium as well or was it just i'm going for the ride here oh well it was never a, i'm going for the ride i mean the only time i i could look back and say i went for the ride it wasn't by choice it was sort of like because i was learning so you know i did the pseudo radio and it was the very first the very first inter internet based radio show on the internet ever like you know it was so new what internet generically became in everybody's home or started to become in everybody's home in 92 93 this was 96 mm -hmm. and it was like a proper studio it wasn't um you know no, everybody wasn't at home and you know on their computers you had to go to a studio because it was that high tech and people's home computers weren't advanced enough to do anything like a podcast at that point. So um, from there, I did, I was also doing terrestrial radio in New York City. So, and that was an overnight. So all the cab, cab drivers really got into the show, uh, which is funny. It's like a, a whole nother thing. So they were very loose shows. We had guests on, but they were very, very loose. Then I went on to do, um, 
uh, IATA, which was another internet show, but it was a little bit more structured and I was doing more producing than I was on air. So I was producing people's shows, um, four or five of them at the time. I had one of my own on the weekend, but I had like five day a week shows that were like five hour shows each. So there was a massive amount of producing and booking guests and all kinds of stuff. So by the time I got to Sirius, which um, the show D ran from 2006 to 2010, um, it was a, in a way it was a really structured show, but it was completely improvised within the show itself. So in other words, you had 15 minutes with William Friedkin, and then you had to go to commercial. So there was a, like a lot of structure within the time, within the commercials, within the commercial reads, within, you know, all the production, within the sound bites, within many, many elements, technical elements, but within that 10 to 15 minutes or the beginning of the show where we would just catch up with each other, um, there was a lot of like improvisation and freedom in that. So yeah. it's kind of like structured chaos, <laughs> which is really great because, you know, th without structure, chaos is just a lot of times boring and too much structure is boring. So there has to be like, you know, there's that line. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Yeah, there's a line. And I think that line was kind of perfect. And it fit the show well. And to speak of D, I mean, he's a friend to this day. He's doing a forward for my book. And, you know, we still talk. And, and he's doing extremely well. He's a man of his word. He is, he's, he tells it like it is. He doesn't take any shit from anybody, but in a good way, not in an asshole way. <laughs> um, he just, you know, to, he's just really, really honest and he's good. And if you're good to him, if you're a good friend and you're not like a climber or bullshitter or, or he's seen it all. I mean, he came up really hard. People don't know that or many people don't know that about him, about his group, about him. Um, you know, he used to rake uh, sand on Long Island on the beaches when he was a kid just to make money. And, and there, he's been through some really hard times. And uh, so he appreciates everything, every success, every, everything that he does. But at the same time, he's, you know, he's really real. He's not at all what you would think. Because when we were first paired up, I was like, I, at first, I was like, well, you know, uh, if he doesn't want to do it, because Sirius was sort of like, you know, they wanted the male lead to be, you know, somebody that they could relate to with their channel, right? And so they were like, they were considering D and D was considering the show and stuff like that. So when it was all in negotiations, I said, well, what about Joe Bob Briggs? You know, that he would be great too. But they being non-horror cult movie, they hadn't even heard of him. So they were like, well, you know, as hard as I tried and, and you know, he didn't really, uh, Joe Bob didn't really get. Uh, the full picture of what we were doing either. So it kind of like mutually fell away, but the D thing really started to pick up and he became, um, you know, the male lead, so to speak, of the show. And I mean, I couldn't be happier. I would have been happy either way. Another person they courted for the show was Bruce Campbell. And he was very interested in doing the show and he was going to do it remotely I believe he lives in Colorado or somewhere like that. And he was going to do it remotely. And that was a possibility. Um, and I don't know why that didn't happen. It could have been simply because, you know, Sirius wanted two people that were in live in studio. Um, it could have been finances. I don't know for sure, but I do know that um, I ended up working with D and I couldn't be happier because I have a friend for life now. And it's funny, and taking out 2020 here, when you say yeah. about working remotely, you know, Sirius has always been on the cutting edge of that because they have studios in L.A., New York, yeah. Miami, Nashville, you know. So it's where you'd have different talent working in different locations. Mm -hmm. Especially, you know, I've always appreciated Sirius with doing that. But... Beings that you worked for them, 
and you once you guys got paired up and such did they ever try to tell you oh you guys got to try to be like howard and robin or hey now whoever these never never. not not even not once not even once and i mean not even once i mean they were just okay now that they've uh created this show that they wanted which is just signing off on it I mean, we were the ones who created the show. They had nothing to do with the content, the guests. I mean, nothing. They so they allowed you to be your own voice then? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they had no no input whatsoever. I mean, the only thing that they would say is, be, is uh, something to the effect of, you know, we completely have swearing, but if you do realize that it's harder to get um, sponsors. So you feel free, do it, but realize that, you know, there could be less sponsors to the, to the show. I mean, that was the biggest thing that was ever said to us. We, we, they loved the show so much that um, when it was on after the, it ended in 2010, which had nothing to do with the show, it had to do with um, Fangoria going through some really hard times and uh, seeing they were putting a lot of money into the show as well, a lot of money more than serious way more than serious so because of that and it had to be paused because there was some financial struggles at bangoria um serious played our repeats for six months hoping we'd come back they were holding our spot so i mean that's how much they like the show so i mean that pretty much says everything yeah it does well gotta ask you about this because it, I know it was just thrown into the set, but it was something you did in 2014. But like I said, it was done put into the recent Screen Factory Friday the 13th set. Mm-hmm. It, and it was being Screen Queens Horror Heroines Exposed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I haven't had a chance to watch the whole set yet with all the extras and nooks and crannies, but I did get to see Screen Queens, this documentary from 2014. Mm-hmm. And I really liked how you did a, you were the host and narrator and such, but you had that line, you were on that line between sex appeal to, you know, there were so many different things, elements that you, I thought you brought to the table with your part of the documentary. What kind of memories do you have for being a part of that? And well, yeah, we'll start there. How do you, what do you think your memories are from doing that? Of doing that? I mean, I had done with the producer, um, Caleb, he, Caleb, I'm sorry, Caleb, not a B and M. Caleb, he, is such an amazing talent. I had done a couple of uh, documentaries previous to that with him where I was just an interviewee. Like um, there was a a documentary he did on 42nd Street and a couple of other ones, I forget the titles. But then when he was commissioned to do this one, it was actually for, uh, I believe it was graduation day. And there was a lot more women and film clips in that version of it. So when the same company put that out, Arrow, put Arrow, right? Uh, Put out the Friday 13th box set, they had the rights to this um, uh, horror heroines, uh, Scream Queens thing that I I did with Calum. And so they recut it. And I think just focused more on the women who had to do with uh, Friday 13th. And so it became that, but that wasn't the original documentary. It was more just all women from all different kinds of movies. Now we shot that he rented, he, he's obviously he's from Ireland and they came over and he's like, he's just an amazing documentary filmmaker because he travels the world getting interviews with people for, for the extras of, of these specialty boutique uh, distributors that put out, insanely thorough re-releases like like that one and um so he 
came to New York and uh, rented like this amazing, him and his assistant rented this amazing, beautiful uh, hotel suite where we shot in. And it was, I mean, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of information. <laughs> it's a lot of information. So um, again, you go to be a lot of fun to improvise this, but uh, no, no, because you're the host, you have to get the information right. So it was um, always fun to work with him, always. So yeah. I, I, will, I will say that. I mean, I, I love the guy. I think he does a fabulous job. I really Our, do. Uh, new co-host who wasn't able to make it today is actually mm -hmm. from Ireland. Which oh. Is, you know, that's funny. Uh, wow. Yes. Elena is a very fun, very, she's a young and up-and-coming actress herself. Right. Uh, but obviously with COVID and everything that's been going on, she's been stuck in place over yeah. there. Which yes. is good, you know, for everybody's safety. But, yeah, you know, but as far as the documentary, you mentioned there was a few other folks in there besides Friday the 13th folks. Like I know in the version I saw, Lisa Wilcox from Nightmare was in there as well. And so, right. you know, it's, but I thought, you know, like I said, you had the glass of wine with you and yeah, you were trying to get the information out. It just seemed like you did have a lot of fun. Yes. <laughs> you know, doing sure. your part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, you have to have fun. I mean, because the old adage is, and it is so damn true, because if you're not having fun, you can be guaranteed that the audience is not having fun watching it. In other words, if you're just spouting off information and thinking, oh, well, maybe this sounds good. Trust me, it doesn't. Because if you don't walk away and say, well, maybe I didn't say every word perfect, but I had a blast doing it that comes across that always comes across so that is the key and that's what Caleb and I were trying to do um and yeah so I mean it, it was a lot of fun it was a lot of information but it was all it was a lot of fun so it's nice to hear that it came across I definitely picked up that you had we're having fun with it at least <laughs> good yeah yeah and that's mission what it's all about at the end of the day that what they say mission accomplished good obviously and can't keep you all day but i did know you worked with him a few times in gunner hansen yes but you worked with him in i think it was a 99 at hell block 13 but you also were part of that cast of characters with several people we've talked to recently and Bill Mosley and Kane Hodder and stuff in Death House. Yeah. You know, have you ever had to pinch yourself when you're working with some of these iconic genre people? You go, you still go, what am I doing here? But also, hey, at the end of the day, this is pretty fun. This is pretty cool. Um, I don't have to pinch myself. Um, and that's not an insult. That It's sort of like, it's kind of hard to describe because my whole thing is um, I always experience people, judge people in a good way, not in a, not in a bad way. I mean, this is in a good way. Treat people, look at people as how they are. Are they good people? Um, I hate systems, cliques, uh, upper echelon, the fact that if somebody's in a successful franchise, they get treated better than somebody's made hundreds of indie movies that some were really good. Like, you know, why is that? That's it's kind of lame and small minded and people should be more creative in finding cool movies. That's always been my opinion because I like counterculture cult movies as much as I like horror and, you know, I can name a million movies that, that I like that aren't part of a franchise. So the reason I say all that is, is because I can meet people that have really liked their work and I've just been blown away by their work. But it really is going to depend on if I find like they're a nice person. That affects me the deepest. And that's why it's such a good and long and close friendship with Gunner as I do with Dee. 
um, is because they're good people. I don't tolerate LA bullshit very well at all. I really don't. And I'm not saying any of these people, yeah, I'm not saying any of these people have it. I'm just saying that, so my pinch myself thing doesn't really happen until um, I find that they're like an amazing actor, like an amazing actor. Um, I have wanted to and and uh, had conversations with Vincent D'Onofrio, how much we would love to work together. Would I pinch myself over that? Well, probably because I know he's a great person and a phenomenal actor. So that's a case where I actually know in advance that someone is phenomenal, right? In both, both areas, because both areas matter to me. I don't want to work with, with jerks, self-involved people. I've worked with them too many times and I've worked with really nice people. So I choose to spend my time with really good people. So with that, I hope that answered the question in any way, shape or form. I mean, Gunner was always a class act, always. And I just, I can't underline that enough. I mean, he got me the highest paying role I ever had. And he was a friend who was always giving me advice and not like, oh, how to make it type of advice, but just kind of like, Debbie, you've been through so much. Like, don't sell yourself short, man. Don't do it, you know? Um, and he, he was just there as a friend. And so that's why I loved him so much, you know, still do. Always will, always will. And and I think Bill Mosley's an amazing human. He is completely awesome. down to earth. I mean, you can't get more down to earth and funny and talented. Oh my God. So yes. the people, I mean, even if they're not like insanely talented, like the people we've already mentioned, but if they're really great humans, I mean, right there, my respect for them goes through the roof and then anything else is gold. If somebody's a, not a great person, but they're great to work with, I can also appreciate that because I could walk away at the end of the day and either go home or go to the hotel room and just, you know, prepare for the next day. I don't have to be around them. And at the end of the day, what's on, on video or film or whatever the case may be, that's all that lives on forever. So that's all that really matters too. Hey, yeah, you did answer a question, but as you were saying that, it's funny cause I'm thinking I just got done editing an interview with a special makeup effects artist, Howard Berger, that we did mm-hmm. last week. And several, you know, like I said, we talked to Bill recently and a few other guests. We all, everybody had that same train of thought. Hmm. Yeah. Really? As far as, as you know, Howard did, I know Bill did, and a few others that I can't think of off the top of my head, but all had that same sentiment of, Hey, you know what? I'd rather be around good people, work with good people, and that whole thing. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it's like I'm sitting there going, as you're saying that, going, really? Wow. It's like, it's cool when I think about that common thread there. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. That's, that's, I love that you, that you pointed that out or you, you know, you made that connection because at the end of the day, we've all worked with great people. Um, and we've all worked with selfish, egocentric assholes and it's just not fun. And it doesn't bring out the best performance in you when you work with those types of people. So what do you really have? Like you barely have a good performance because you're struggling against all odds. It feels like, you know what I mean by that? Mm -hmm. Like you're, you're struggling against like all the crap that you have to wade through to get to. The only thing that matters is the performance as opposed to with good people who just also want to do good work and put something down that's, you know, gr- as good as possible. Great, hopefully. And um, yeah, I mean, that's the reason why nobody's on a set for ego reasons or they shouldn't be. And, I, and I've always said that and it's always going to be the way it is because Hollywood was built on egos. But I would just prefer not to if I had a choice. I mean, unless there was um, a really sick amount of money involved and then I could go off and do, you know, direct or create or do whatever I wanted to 
making a whole bunch of films from that money, um, I would be happy to take that money under those circumstances um, because I would have a game plan. But overall, I mean, artistically, you can't be artistic with um, people who are not of the same, you know, thought process. So yeah, That's funny. I, I agree with those guys completely. It's funny because how you said it just there reminded me again of what I was when I was cleaning up uh, the interview with Howard Berger, and he said, "You know, I've been in the game long enough that, mm -hmm. like you said, uh, with D, I got the sniff test that if some if I'm going to be around assholes or something, don't see, I got that gut instinct? I'm not going to take the job for me or my." special effects uh, studio because right. if i can't be around good people yeah it's not worth it exactly it's just not worth it because it's a nightmare that goes on for a long time especially if you're the filmmaker and you're having to live with the movie for many years like pre-production filming post-production editing and all that yeah whole bit i mean so you better like at least even if it, so if it happens, then you tried and it just happened to happen. But if you make a point of doing your best for it to not happen, it's just going to be a better experience. But at the end of the day, we will all in every form, whether you're working regular job, a film job, any kind of job, anybody knows that there always will be that person or that issue or that thing that's really, you know, anxiety creating so that's why you kind of want to avoid it as much as you can as much as you can in the words and i, I might put the clip here and just because it fits i think it had a sound effect of uh, ringo star saying peace and love peace and love peace and love peace and love yes. perfect <laughs> yes obviously i know you're very active on social media uh, there's facebook.com Debbie Rashawn news page, but also can check out all your other stuff through DebbieRashawn.com. Yeah. Is there, obviously things have been halted somewhat this year because of COVID and all that stuff, but mm -hmm. is there anything upcoming that you uh, want to mention? I really do. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. Uh, quickly here. Um, I have a new podcast called Obscurities and it's not like your show where you talk to people. It's just talking about the unusual, the, the truth, the mystery. Do they meet somewhere in the middle? Um, just the show is just, a, it's, it's about a 15, 20 minute um, thought process on various elements that are considered either mysteries or obscurities. Um, it's not a guest show. It's not a review show. And I love it. And I would love people. I'll put up um, on my website because I actually forgot to today. Um, you know, it's, I know it's on social media, but I like people to have one place to get everything. DebbieRashawn.com. So obscurities is something I would really love people to check out and listen to. That would mean a lot. Uh, brand new, just working on episode two right now. Um, my book autobiography is just from 74 to 84. So it's my time on the street. I'm just, I, I'm saying I'm finishing it, but I can't give an exact date because it's a, it's a tough thing to plan so perfectly, but I am finishing that book. Uh, from the underbelly to the underground is the name of it. So as well as other things that I'm doing, um, you know, getting ready for things that will happen after the pandemic sort of eases up. Those are the two things that I'm actively working on and producing actively during the pandemic. Well, you know, before I let you go, I want to ask about that again, because you brought up the book a couple of times now. And I was a, uh, and still am to an extent, even though I'm not in school anymore, a history major. Mm. Very well versed in history, which is scary. Mm -hmm. God forbid I learned something. I just picked up President Obama's book yesterday. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being a history major and stuff. And I have spoken to many folks who have been involved in the process of writing books. 
are you actually writing your book yourself or is there ghostwriters involved or there's not a single ghostwriter involved and and i wouldn't have it any other way although i laugh and strictly as a joke i often say boy wouldn't it be easier if but no but no i mean every single thing every element um every everything every single thing is is all me so and that's why it takes so much time too because you know i'll remember something that happened and i'll have to retrace it to make sure it's it's perfectly in sequence with everything as it really happened meaning it could be something very small but i could remember a song that came out right around that time so i'll research the song maybe do a couple of other things to research it to make sure i have the like right thing in the right may not be the the i'm not going by month but year that's important so that's one way it's funny that's one way i can kind of backtrack on certain things and sort of like uh double check myself that i've got the right year like it was 79 and not eight that that happened because i know as a kid and um you know not having tv during that period of time i can kind of uh put songs on it's an interesting thing you talk about history and researching that was this kind of like one of the the ways that i i kind of go about um making sure i'm i keep on track for what was happening when and i appreciate and the reason i asked the question like i did is i appreciate books more and i think someone as someone who reads often mm -hmm. you can tell when it comes to biographies and such when the book is truly in somebody's voice yes yes absolutely yes yes and and the bland stuff that even if it tells really moving stories but the the i mean some ghost writers are really damn good i mean let's give them credit where credit yes, i'm not knocking those guys but yeah i mean i think if you can have a voice even if you there's some misfires within the book i'd rather read the raw misfires but have the voice wouldn't you agree like yes. you know go with them on their journey even it could get a little bumpy in the telling of it now and again but i do not care because that was i really felt like it was raw and real and that's what i'm going for and it this book is so damn raw it's in the good sense you know yeah in the good sense yeah and i appreciate things being in a person's voice like i said in, as far as reading books uh, mm -hmm. that's on a biography sense and such but, right uh for more information on this stuff folks debbyrashan.com you can find her social media but as she said as well everything in one spot on the website debbie thank you so much for the time oh thank you thank you and thank you for your patience i know it's been you know a couple of <laughs> A couple of um, times here, but I appreciate you very, very much and being so kind with this and uh, and having me on. I, I appreciate it very much. I had a great time. Thank you. Not all football helmets are created equal. Zenith, the industry leader in protective technology, is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shock suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell. Headquartered and developed in Detroit, Zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation. Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from peewee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. With over 30 years of experience and a superb reputation for being a detail-oriented company, Lacey Cleaning has some of the highest work standards in the cleaning business. That's the fact! Whether it's carpet cleaning, tile, grout cleaning, new construction cleanup, rental turnovers, vent and duct cleaning, 
odor elimination, office and or business cleaning, power washing, residential cleaning, you name it, they do it. Check them out to contact them today, LaceyCleaning at gmail.com or call them at 609-709-8536. That's what I'm talking about. Hey, it's me, Bill Mosley, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. Ride that crazy train, and happy Halloween.